Good morning. If you have your Bibles still handy, would you please turn with me to our main text for this morning, which comes from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. I had first spoken on this text in July of 1998, and it was entitled, Who is the Greatest in the Kingdom of God? However, it might be more appropriately renamed, Protect Our Children. Protect Our Children, as we shall see. Matthew 18, 1 to 14, beginning at verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged upon his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee, it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be he that he findeth, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. 
And may God, the Holy Spirit, grant us the wisdom to understand the text before us this morning. As this particular scene opens up, we see the disciples all coming to Jesus at the same time with the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who will be the most important in position or in rank in the kingdom of heaven? It was an issue that the disciples had been discussing amongst themselves for quite some time now, for we read in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 33 to 34, the following. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed amongst yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed amongst themselves who should be the greatest. Now the Lord knew all along what they had been disputing about, for he is God. But he nonetheless allows them the opportunity to personally articulate this question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Notice, first of all, that these are his disciples. These are the twelve disciples as we know them, those from the inner circle, so to speak those who had been privileged to walk with him, to see him perform countless miracles, to hear him teach the truths of God as they sat at his feet. They witnessed firsthand his tenderness and mercy to all with whom he came in contact. These were Peter, James, and John, and Judas, and so on. These are the disciples who disputed amongst themselves debating as who should be the greatest in his kingdom. Would it be Peter, the chief spokesman, who had already been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew sixteen nineteen? Would he, for instance, be given the position of Lord Chancellor of the household? Or would it be Judas, who was their treasurer, would he be given the position of Lord Treasurer in the kingdom of heaven and thereby be considered the greatest? Or perhaps it might be the disciple John, the one who was called his beloved disciple, the one who seemed closest to Jesus. Would he be given the greatest position? Or perhaps it might be Andrew, after all, was he not the one who was called first of all? Surely he might be given a position worthy of his calling. Perhaps the disciples may have debated in like manner for quite some time until the question was finally asked in Matthew 18.1, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But the Lord does not answer them directly. Instead, he calls a little child and sets him in the midst. Who this little child was, we are not told, nor are we given his age. Some have guessed that the little child may have been one of Peter's children, since Mark's gospel talks about being in the house at Capernaum where Peter lived. The important thing to notice here is that the child came at his will. 
and was willingly placed where Jesus wished. I would venture a guess that there was a smile on our Savior's face as he tenderly reached down to pick up this little child and then gently set him in the midst of the twelve disciples as his little model. Thus we have a wonderful picture of Christ gathered to study, the church gathered to study Jesus and his childlike character. But before he begins his lesson, and after the, uh, the disciples have gathered around the tiny figure in their midst, Jesus once again picks the little child up in his arms, for so we are told in Mark 9.36, and affectionately holds him close to his bosom as he begins his lesson in Matthew 18.3. Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now the first and most important requirement for entrance into the kingdom of heaven is conversion. We recall the Savior's conversation earlier on with Nicodemus, who came to him secretly in the night in John chapter 3, and the Lord clearly told him in verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul also emphasizes the necessity of this spiritual rebirth when he is expounding the resurrected new body in 1 Corinthians 15.50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. But here in Matthew 18.3, the Lord is not referring to that spiritual rebirth that all who enter heaven must first experience. He is talking to his disciples who are already, by and large, all believers except for one, Judas. And so he is not intending the meaning here for converted to be the same as regeneration or spiritual rebirth, but rather he means that their opinions and attitudes and feelings about the kingdom of the Messiah must be changed. They need to be converted from their pride and their self-seeking ambitions. They need to become humble and content. The true subjects of the kingdom are meek and lowly, who hear the voice of Jesus and come at his call, content to sit wheresoever he may place them. They must become like this little child in their midst, trusting, content, humble, and willing to be esteemed least and last of all. Whosoever, says Jesus in verse 4, therefore shall humble himself as the little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And oh, how this should speak to all of us who are called Christians. 
How often have believers found themselves in the same attitude and mind as these disciples, striving with one another, wishing to esteem themselves better than their brethren? How often has fellowship been broken and ruined because of self-seeking pride and worldly ambitions? And how many testimonies have been permanently ruined because of this selfish attitude? Oh, how we all need to guard ourselves against it and to remember the child in the midst. Therefore, whosoever shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, the least is the greatest. The most humble is the most exalted. He that will fulfill the lowest offices for the brethren shall be highest in their esteem. It is wisdom for a man to humble himself, for in so doing he will avoid the unpleasant experience of being humbled by others. Children do not try to be humble, but they are so naturally, and the same is so with really gracious people. False humility or imitation of humility is upsetting and distasteful, but true humility is both attractive and of great price. And then the Lord continues in verse 5, And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. To receive a little child in his name is to receive Jesus himself. To delight in a humble, meek, lowly, and trustful character is to delight in the character of Christ himself. For Christ identifies himself with all who trust in him. He is not only the Savior of the vile, wretched sinner who has squandered his youthful years in sin and debauchery, now realizing his or her desperate need of forgiveness and cleansing, but Christ is also the Savior of these precious little ones, these children, who in their natural innocence are so attracted to him because of his tender interest in them. Scripture is very clear about this in many places. Jesus loves all the children of the world. Whether they are red or yellow, black or white, they are all precious in his sight. Mark's gospel of this particular scene gives us a most beautiful picture of Jesus and the child which he used for his object lesson. Mark tells us in chapter 9, verses 36 and 37, And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name, receiveth me. Jesus held this little one in his arms, close to his breast, And while in that protective and loving position, he demonstrated a most important principle and requirement of his kingdom. Humility. What a picture to behold 
a child unable to yet care for itself, lovingly cradled in the arms of the Almighty. Where else could that child be more secure, more loved, more blessed than in the arms of Jesus? In Matthew 19, 13 to 14, shortly after this particular account, we read of another incident where Jesus is in the presence of children. Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Jesus loves children. He loves them because he created them. He loves them because they are his, and as such, he means to protect them through his warning in verses 6 through 10. He has just taught that all who receive a child in his name receive Christ himself. Now he is going to show the opposite is also true by analogy. Verse 6, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Verse 10, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven. Notice, please, the serious warning which the Savior gives to those who would offend any of these little ones who believe in him. Remember that Jesus is still in the midst of the disciples, with this little child still in his arms, close to his bosom. Do not despise any one of these little ones, because God loves them, and their heavenly angels do always appear before their heavenly Father, who himself takes a special interest in all children. He has thus set his holy angels about them for their good. Never does the Lord speak more sternly to anyone than to those who would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Oh, how this should be a wake-up call to all of us today. There are many stumblers of young children today in our society. There are those who teach them that there is no God that evolution explains our existence and reason for being here. There are those who have adopted immoral lifestyles and have imposed them upon young children under their care and influence. Still others have instilled in these precious ones that there are no absolutes, there is no such thing as right and wrong, only situational ethics. Then there are those who teach a false gospel, a false Christ, and thereby a false sal uh, salvation. 
Included in this array of child stumblers are also those who withhold from their very own children the basic necessities of life, whether it be physical, such as food, clothing, shelter, or spiritual necessities such as the Word of God and love and comfort and compassion. For such, says Jesus in 6, verse 6, it were better that a millstone be hanged about his neck and he cast into the depths of the sea. Such stumbling blocks the Lord foresaw and warned his hearers to not be among them. Our nation's destiny hangs in the balance today because of our mistreatment and abuse of our children. Many of our children are brought into this world illegitimately and then abandoned by irresponsible young parents who, under the guise of inability to properly care for their child, hand them over to adoption agencies, which in turn place these children in appalling circumstances to be raised contrary to the will of God. Still hundreds of thousands each year are sacrificially led to the abortionist knife because their mother has been deceived into killing her own child. And then there are countless thousands of other children that are sexually abused and mistreated by family members themselves. Is it not easy to see where we as a nation are quickly headed and where we find ourselves today? The enemy has effectively removed our freedom to teach, to read and to study the Word of God in our schools, in our homes, and in most of our churches as well. And as a result of this, our society is blindly heading towards God's judgment. We must never forget the example of Israel in the Old Testament. Israel, God's chosen people. Israel, that nation upon which God set his favor and grace and caused to prosper and used her as a channel of blessing to the rest of the world. To Israel, he gave his truth in the form of scriptures. To Israel, he gave light and prosperity and abundance. But when Israel turned from God and became idolatrous and sinned unashamedly before their God and Savior, God's judgment was poured upon her with great wrath. First came the Assyrian hordes and caused Israel to be carried captive. The first when Pekah reigned as king of Israel in 740 B.C., and then when Hosea reigned as king of Israel in 721 B.C. Here is what the scriptures say were the reasons for God's judgments in 2 Kings 17, 15 to 18. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them 
that they should not do like them. And they left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molten images, even two calves, and made a grove, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. Verse 17, And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through fire and used divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke them to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from out of his sight. Imagine parents sacrificing a seven-day-old child alive, burning them alive to a false god called Molech. Then came the Babylonian captivity of Judah under the generalship of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in 597 BC. Judah also fell and was taken captive. The scriptures again tell us the reasons why this tribe, chosen of God, fell under such terrible judgment by the God who called them to be his own. In Ezekiel 16.38, Jehovah tells of Judah's impending judgment. And I will judge thee as women that break wedlock and shed blood are judged. And I will give thee blood in fury and jealousy. And the charges against Judah are almost identical to the charges against Israel. But the last straw, so to speak, is Judah's treatment of its own children. For we read in Ezekiel 16, 20-21, Moreover, thou hast taken thy sons and thy daughters, whom thou hast borne unto me, and though these hast thou sacrificed unto them to be devoured. Is this of thy whoredom a small matter, that thou hast slain my children and delivered them to cause them to pass through fire? For them. Again, notice the Lord calls the children his children. Judah, like Israel, sacrificed their children to the pagan deity Moloch by causing their children to pass through fire, to be burned alive in fire. And God's long suffering and tolerance came to an end. And his judgment fell even upon his chosen people. Now, as we resume, resume again our main text in Matthew 18, 11 to 14, we read, For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. This is the second reason why we should not despise these little ones whom Jesus loves so deeply. Not only has God placed his holy angels to care for them and to minister to them, we're told in verse 10, but also because Jesus came to save them. He came to give his life a ransom for all of these precious ones. Jesus then gives the parable of the lost sheep in verses 12 and 17 to illustrate 
the importance of God's concern and care for every individual child. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which had not gone astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus uses the illustration of the lost sheep. The man had a hundred sheep, and one of them wandered off. It was lost and could not find its way back to the fold. Now some would say, purely from a business perspective, let's cut our losses. It's only one sheep. If we leave the other 99 unattended to go look for the lost one, we may lose even more. But you see, God is not in the business of making profits. God is in the business of saving souls, of caring for his sheep. To him, each one is as precious as the other. Each one is as worth as much as the other. God takes a personal interest in every last one of them. This says so much more about the character of God than it does about the character of the sheep. Though this sheep that has strayed away may have displayed a rebellious streak in its wandering, it nevertheless now may be displaying fear and confusion and a great desire to be reunited with its flock, but it does not know how to find its way back. God knows what the sheep are capable of and incapable of, and he knows that unless he finds it, the sheep will perish. And so in the parable, the man will not rest until he finds it. He will fight to save it. He will search for it until he rescues it. Such is the picture of the good shepherd. And when he finds it, joy will be both his portion and the sheep's portion. And so Jesus gives this parable, this illustration of the lost sheep, to demonstrate the intensity of God's love and care for his children. Verse 14, Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And as Jesus concludes this teaching about the necessity of childlike humility, and the importance of children in the kingdom of heaven, the eyes of the disciples are intensely still focused on this little child who is still in the arms of our loving Savior. But then we also have an interesting segment in the middle of all of this, verses 7, 8, and 9. Jesus teaches about offenses in general in this section. He goes from the specific offense of offending a child who trusts in him to offenses in general. He states in verse 7, 
that offenses must come. There will be things in life that will produce sin, things that will cause us to sin or temptations that will induce others to sin. That is the state of man. Man is always prone to sin. This is therefore the misery of every age. There will always be those men or women in every age who will, because of their sinful disposition, try to mislead, to deceive, to tempt, to persecute, to threaten, to allure, to persuade or seduce believers from their faith and lead them into sinning. Those who in any way hinder the salvation of others will find their own condemnation the more intolerable. Woe to that man by whom the offense cometh, verse 7. Then in verses 8 and 9, the Lord gives a stern warning to his own disciples. He illustrates the severity of our war against sin through these two verses. Temptations and allurements to sin are so dangerous that if we should find ourselves in them, then we should do our utmost to rid ourselves of them. If the cost to us should be to enter maimed in this life without hand or foot, it would be a small price to pay so long as we enter into life eternal. Better by far to give up the cultural things, the worldly accomplishments, than to miss out on eternal life. The so-called half-educated, timid, humble, simple-minded believer who, in order to escape the snares of false science, worldly cunning and courtly pride, has cut himself off from the advantages in life, will in the long run prove to have been wiser than those who have risked their souls for such things. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, quote, The humble in heart, though judged to be fools among the ungodly, must not be so judged of by us. We must see to it that we never look down on them with the pity which is akin to contempt. They are very dear to God. They are cared for by angels, I, by the presence of angels who dwell near the eternal throne. Nay, this is not all. Jesus himself cares for the poorest and the neediest. Yes, he came to save that which was lost. How dare we then be proud and despise a child because of its youth, or a man because of his poverty, or his want of intelligence? The angels and their Lord care for the most despised of our race. Shall not we? End of quote. This then brings us to the end of our text for this morning. In answer to the disciples' question, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of God. I trust that all of us here this morning have been challenged by the Lord's
illustration of the child in the midst, and that the essential character and attitude of the kingdom of heaven is one of humility, genuine humility after conversion. But genuine humility, that childlike humbleness, is impossible without first experiencing genuine conversion. Jesus said in verse 3, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. He also said in John 3, 3, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, there are two aspects to the word conversion. In John 3, 3, it deals with the aspect of regeneration, a new birth, a newness of life, or the spiritual rebirth. Only God can give us that new spiritual rebirth when we repent of our sins and by faith put our trust in Jesus Christ as our sin bearer. Eternal life is a gift of God, and I trust that everyone here this morning has availed themselves of that gift. But then there is that other aspect of conversion as it is used in this passage here, that of a changed attitude, a changed mind. And oh, how we as Christians need this conversion of attitude and mind today. I trust that will be our our goal today, to have that childlike humbleness willing to take the lowest place and willing to be content wheresoever the Lord may set us. Now, before I step down from this platform, I must ask not only you here this morning, but also our greater audience who might be listening by sermon audio these questions. Do you have any children? And have you led them to the Lord, or have you by default caused them to stumble? A young child has no trouble coming to the Savior, since eternity is already bound in the conscience of every child, and has from the day that it was born an awareness of the existence of the Almighty who put it there. It is only when that child, as he grows older, is subjected to perverse teachings and denials of the Almighty's existence, that he or she begins to falter. And so I warn all those who would lead these young ones astray, whether it be the teachers, professors, or mentors who deny creation and promote evolution in our schools, or false ministers of the gospel who sexually abuse these precious ones within the church. Repent. Turn from your sins. There is no more heinous crime in the sight of God than the abuse of his children. And you can be sure that your sin will find you out. So I plead with everyone who is listening or will be listening to this message, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved while there is still yet time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we 
thank thee so much for thy word and for this beautiful illustration of the Lord Jesus and the child in the midst and how he dearly loves all the little children of the world. Help us, Lord, to take this message to heart and to have a desire to have a conversion of attitude and mind as well, that we may seek to be humble rather than to be first, that we may seek to be kind and compassionate rather than expecting others to do us favor. We thank thee, Lord, for this time together and for the remembrance of the Lord's Supper this morning. Now ask thy blessing upon each and every one of us here this morning, that thou might part us with thy blessing, keep us safe, and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together round his table next Lord's Day. For we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.